TFBS. Radio Tootie. Radio Tootie. with Christopher Lee. Victoria Meeking, thank you very much, and the BFPS Newsroom team. And to you, you are very welcome at this week's Sipret Round Table on an overcast but warm London town. Well, in the next hour, the Prime Minister is in Afghanistan, the Taliban bombers are at the wedding. NATO defence ministers meet today, but do they really want to hear the truth about Afghanistan? Afghanistan itself, the long, hot and lethal summer not going according to the McChrystal plan. Afghanistan, again, why the MOD can't afford to, so won't get into Kandahar. Pakistan, 17% rise in defence budget, sounds good, but can Pakistan really contain the mind defeat insurgency? Iran, is it about to explode? taking the whole of the Middle East with it. China, can she control North Korea? Gaza is not gone away, and the new armada is forming up. Cuba, just a bunch of softies after all. And WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks. Will the thought please close it down, or should we be all whistleblowers? And the special one, the special one. Not that one, the other one. Stay with us, find out which one. Okay, um, with me in the studio at the SITREP round table... Uh, today, John Dickey, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, Dr. Martin McCauley from University College London, and Michael Codner, a former naval person and the director of military studies at the Royal United Services Institute. Um, there is a report, uh, Michael Codner, today in the Times newspaper of what appears to be the almighty cock-up of the British military, British politicians and civil servants that made uh, in the way they sent British troops to Afghanistan in 2006. It's the most damning condemnation, they say, of military ambition and political incompetence for some time. Is that a bit exaggerated, Michael Connor? I would certainly say it's exaggerated, but there, there is a kernel of truth in there about the um, rush, you might say, to commit um, ground forces to Afghanistan at that time at the fairly low level um, which it was and much of this to my mind has to do with the role of the Ace Rapid Reaction Corps and Britain's role as framework nation for that uh, and uh, its origins at the end of the Cold War when it was the role that Britain wanted well certainly the army wanted to preserve its field army status which it otherwise In was it found a war, a possibility of war and wanted to get there well this is this is that that's the the crude story um the arguments over incompetence and relationships and all of that um i think are probably overstated but i would certainly say that this is a main theme in all of this and one where I'm, i know i'm fairly certain that um john reed himself was quite skeptical about what, the yes, time. what what the um army needed to be able to do but he thought they needed more he certainly thought they needed john more dickie he'd been inside yeah. Story. John, he'd been listening to Sir Kevin Tebbett, who was then the permanent undersecretary at the Defence Ministry, who was pretty sceptical. He had a lot of suspicions at the time. The difficulty is, of course, that um, the ministerial view is that you should send in the least number of troops to do the job so that you minimise the risk of casualties which look very bad for a government making a decision that perhaps was wrong. It's also true we didn't have many troops handy. We didn't have, but when we sent 3,300, we assumed that they would be in control. The trouble was that when they landed, they were sitting targets for the Taliban. Yes. Um, Martin McCauley, there's one aspect of this which I think is disturbing. Uh, Mr Edelman, who was uh, in the State Department, I think, Undersecretary for Defence and Policy <coughs> at the time, says to the Times newspaper 
Listen, uh, I went over to London and I said to, and this is 2006, and I said, listen, you're going to send people to Afghanistan. You're only sending 3,000. Uh, it's not that we want you to send more, but we think you need more. <clears throat> and they said, no, 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 we won't need any more. Rather embarrassing because uh, the British Army is a very proud tradition, uh, has been in Afghanistan for 200 years and presumably were very confident they knew of the Afghans, they knew Afghanistan. And what did the Americans know about Afghanistan? And it turns out that the Americans knew more than uh, the British. And I think it goes back to Michael's point uh, that they wanted to keep uh, an active army, and if you get involved in Afghanistan, then money's going to come in. Pretty much a mess, Michael. But it was also the miscalculation. I mean, it was John, John Reed who said that they could come back without firing a shot in anger. Yes, I, mean, that's, that's, I think that was one of those... That lived to haunt him, that. That was one of those uh, quotes that were probably brilliantly taken out of context, as all quotes should be, um, but he'll never get away from it. Yeah. That would certainly be my judgment. But one, one needs to bear in mind the grand strategic, uh, as opposed to the military political reasons, all had to do with helping the Americans out who are otherwise distracted. And this goes right back to why we went in and alongside them in the first place. And it's that particular legacy of commitment to supporting the Americans that goes back to um, 2001, yeah. which really, um, <clears throat> as much as anything, um, keeps us that t there today. And I'm not disparaging our commitment at the moment and the importance of it and the sustainment of it, but that's that strong part of the history is your, along that line. Your organisation, Royal United Services Institute, is, is doing a study, isn't it, on the, the basis of the special relationship at the moment. We, we've completed one paper and it's an ongoing theme for our work um, um, contributing from outside to the uh, the uh, defence review that's um, mm. underway at the moment. And it's one theme that is particularly important. Yes, very quickly, John, somebody who's written a book called Special No More, I, I think you probably would not necessarily prejudge um, the outcome, but uh, you've got your own views. I think it's largely a matter of rhetoric. Every uh, Prime Minister going to the White House lawn likes to uh, be flattered with that description, and the Americans are ready to do so. But since the Cold War ended, there is no more special relationship between the US and Britain than there has been, say, the US and Israel. Right. Um, anyway, as we heard in the news the, from the BFBS newsroom, the Prime Minister, Mr Cameron, went to Afghanistan today. Uh, along with the economy, Afghanistan is the top item in his intray, he said, among other things. You know, we're not sending any more troops. Um, this intray overflows into Brussels, where NATO defence ministers are meeting today and tomorrow. The BBC security and defence correspondent Nick Charles is at NATO headquarters. Um, Nick, I heard the uh, Secretary-General say that Afghanistan that, um, is so important, especially after the, uh, the peace jerga that, was, that, that took place, that there should be a political process leading to peace. I don't mean to be disparaging, but there are some pretty obvious things in Brussels, aren't there, about Afghanistan? I suppose so, yes. I mean, I mean there is a sense that uh, uh, I think that NATO is doing all it can, but uh, in, in the end, it's not going to provide the solution. It can hold hold the ring, as it were, and uh, and hold hold the towel. But um, in terms of uh, what what actually happens, that's going to be in the hands of others, and I think that's that's rather dawning on NATO at the moment, um, even as they uh, brace themselves for uh, for the next stage in their the, the military campaign, leading to all the the other things that they hope will will eventually produce uh, at least a 
safe enough, secure enough and stable enough Afghanistan so that the uh, withdrawal can start. Did you hear uh, what uh, General Stanley uh, McChrystal, the uh, the commander in Afghanistan, was saying? He said that we're not going to go with this next stage towards Kandahar as quickly as we thought we might. Why would that be? Yes, yes, indeed. I was in on, on the briefing where he, where he was talking about that. Um, he, was, he was quite cautious in his, in his words. He was saying, you know, essentially the plan is in, in framework the same as it was before. But, but frankly, they've learned to some extent from Helmand province and Operation Mushtarak, uh, which, although was a, um, described as a great success early on, has, has proved more difficult. Uh, and there has been some regression there, I think. And he, uh, he acknowledged that it's been more complex, particularly on the issue of, of the kind of political framework and the political conditions on the ground, which is supposed to be at the, at the nub of all this. This isn't, uh, he keeps on saying, uh, the old take the hill kind of conventional warfare. It's supposed to be something new, but clearly that something new is, is proving more complicated to deal with than, than had been thought. So he's saying, yes, we're... Um, it's going to unfold uh, more deliberately, he, he used the phrase, but, but yes, more slowly than perhaps had originally been planned. And, and up to your discussion earlier, I think there, there is also a, a consensus that whatever the British did or didn't do, that there is a the sense in NATO as well, and to some extent among the Americans, that uh, they underestimated the need for, um, for, for boots on the ground, force density and all that. And that's why um, we've had the surge now, and, and there may well be the need for, for more troops on the ground, the, uh, the impression is here including in Helmand, uh, to, to hold the ring. But certainly from what uh, Prime Minister Cameron was saying today, uh, if there are going to be more trips, they're not going to be British trips. I mean, basically, we can't afford them. We probably haven't got them. And also, I think, as the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, was saying the other day after meeting the US Defence Secretary, Robert Gates, nobody's asked them uh, to send any more. No, that's right. Um, I've been travelling with, uh, with Robert Gates, actually, um, uh, in the run-up to this this meeting and and he's he certainly absolves britain of of the need for extra for resources he said with nine and a half thousand uh, troops on the ground frankly as far as he is concerned nobody could ask the british to do more and they've been admirable partners but that's i don't think going to be the message he's giving to some of the other uh, allies here and partners here in the uh, in in the corridors of brussels over the next couple of days particularly on this question of trainers uh, there's still a shortfall he's clearly rather fed up with that fact and he's had he says he's had to put in some more american trainers in on a short-term basis but clearly that is that is the key to the whole transition process that everyone's talking about here and that that ministers will be talking about tomorrow this this uh, attempt to hand over to to the afghan uh, authorities and uh, you know at the risk of uh, talking cliches again the next few months are going to be critical because um, the, the the clock is ticking on this and, and Mr Gates was saying frankly if there isn't discernible and uh, substantive progress to show publics presumably in the West and in Afghanistan as well by the end of the year then then essentially they're going to have a real problem on their hands I was hearing um, the, um, the the Secretary General of NATO Anders Fogh uh, Rasmussen earlier this week saying training in Afghanistan it's a real success story I mean it doesn't sound it well that's the paradox and and to be honest uh, General McChrystal was saying the same thing he said frankly in terms of um, the targets they're actually ahead of target on the training of the the Afghan army at least uh, and he says you know the quality is coming on uh, the 
police remain a challenge, I think was the phrase he used. Um, but, uh, but on that front, uh, things are moving forward. Of course, when, when the complexity of the operation is also uh, growing at the same time, then it's, then it's a moving target as well. And as he pointed, in terms, pointed out, in terms, of, in terms of the development, they're not talking about you know, a well-established army like the US Army. They do have what con continuing concerns about issues of leadership, officers, NCOs, that sort of thing. Um, and the Taliban are a uh, very resilient uh, foe, clearly, as far as NATO is concerned. And, and he was saying also it's going to be a, a violent and very difficult few months over the summer, even though at the same time he says he's confident there will be progress that he can point to by the end of the year. Right. Nick Charles at um, BBC, uh, BBC uh, Security and Defence Correspondent. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, just gone quarter past the hour. Um, you're listening to SITREP, round, uh, the roundtable with me, uh, Dr. Martin McCauley from University College London, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, and Michael Codner, the director of military studies at the Royal United Services Institute. This meeting, John Dickey, is really gearing up to the summit in November, isn't it? That's going to be the biggie where they'll be talking about Afghanistan, they'll be talking about NATO enlargement and, all, uh, and missile defence. And budget, presumably. And budget. I mean, there is a feeling that um, certain countries are falling behind their commitment to uh, commit uh, 2% of GDP to military um, uh, costs and uh, while the Americans are over 4%, the Brits are over 2%, and so the French and the Germans, there are other countries that are cutting back. And also the fact that Angela Merkel in her uh, sort of budget austerity uh, speech the other day talked about reducing the German army by 40,000 men. This is worrying uh, all around the alliance. Mm. Uh, Michael Codner, the, uh, this idea is a percentage of GDP. That's the only way you can measure uh, generally as an alliance how much people make a contribution. But if you take Turkey, for example, which is a huge... Uh, percentage of their uh, GDP doesn't make them uh, enormously efficient uh, uh, armed forces, does it? Well, partly um, Turkey's uh, percentage of defence spending in proportion to GDP relates to its uh, relationship with Greece, and the same with the Greek um, expenditure. Um, no, it's it's the, the nature of the forces, how useful they are to NATO, and in the what's what, in them. Uh, in what's in them, but also what NATO's purpose is, and that's uh, one of the big issues for the. For, for the meeting in November, bearing in mind that uh, the big thing there, one of the big things, of course, is approving a strategic concept of which missile defence and other things are part. This, this is the new idea, that it, it, almost the reason for having NATO. What's it for? And, um, and, and importantly, however much these nations spend, what you want is an organisation that's going to rationalise that expenditure and integrate it, uh, particularly the European contribution, and the problem is, unless you have a very clear strategic concept, this says exactly what we're for, what forces we need to do the job, what capabilities, uh, so the small nations can, mm. ministries of defence can say to their treasuries, this is our bit, and our 1.6% may not be 2.2, but it's going to be well used. And don't disparage the Turks, if you I remember. I don't at all. Johnny Turk was the, the hero yeah. in the Korean War, and the Turks have... You know, yes, behaved yes. with a great deal of, of tenacity. Yes, yes but, but the present government, uh, the AKP party, which is, some people say is pro-Islamic, they want to downgrade the military mm. because they see it as, That's right. if you like, the secular wing of the state. And there's a trial underway at present. Um, Martin McCauley, I mean, when you're um, with your, your mates in Moscow, as they're called, um, 
the Russians must be looking at what's going on in NATO with some curiosity because in some ways there is a, quite a movement to get Russia mm -hmm. at long last to become part of NATO. You can look at it two ways. Uh, if you're Putin and you're the hardline military, you're very sad because you want NATO to be strong. You're talking all the time about being a threat. Therefore, you want the military budget uh, ratcheted up. But then if you go to the other side uh, and said, well, NATO is falling apart and so on, and uh, if we join it, it'll cost us money and so on, and you have to, the defense industry is in a pretty poor state, and if you want to upgrade the military, you have to import, buy all the, all the technology abroad. So therefore, the Russian military is in uh, a, a mess at present, and you've got one group saying, no, we should produce everything inside Russia. The other saying, no, we should modernise and buy from outside. Uh, it's much easier to buy a football team. Listen, uh, John, <laughs> John Dickey, um, there's one aspect of this that, that the Russians are very interested in, that's Ukraine at the uh, moment, who want to go on NATO exercises, and the Russians not really keen on that. No, and of course, uh, the last uh, seven meetings between uh, the Russians and uh, Yanukovych, the uh, Ukrainian president, have been full of uh, rapprochement. It's interesting that during the last of these meetings, uh, the parliament in Kiev mm. passed a resolution uh, for military exercises with NATO. So I think NATO has still got a popularity, uh, even though the, the Ukrainians don't want Not to join. Not in Moscow, it hasn't. No, to join uh, NATO, <laughs> but uh, it has a popularity in Kiev. Right. No. Okay. Well, Martin, quickly. Yanukovych is between the devil and deep blue sea because the Ukrainian co uh, economy is in trouble. And if he concedes too much to the Russians, then he gets bitten. And uh, if he doesn't give enough to the Russians, they bite him. So therefore, Yanukovych is in, uh, is well, in he, a difficult state. Well, he did an extension uh, of the Russian fleet in Sevastopol of, uh, until the Black 2000, Sea Fleet. Uh, yes. Yeah, until, you know, until 2042. All, all he's done but is... But he got uh, gas cheaply, I would say. Yeah, Gazprom um, is going to pay less. But then uh, um, will that, in fact, mean anything in the end? Right. Uh, last one, Michael, and, and then we're going to Pakistan. And the young Ukrainians, whether East Ukrainian or West Ukrainian, do see um, the future in the European Union one day, and NATO is a route to that. So it's certainly a route to that. Oh, there was a vote of 60 percent against NATO. It's also East Ukraine. 60 percent against NATO membership. And talk about the youngsters. The youngsters, then. Well, yeah, they were in, in the poll. West, West Ukraine is in favour because West Ukraine yeah. used to be in Poland. You see, this is why NATO is so important, but not yeah. here. Yeah. Okay, listen. I want to get something which was pretty That's close happened. yesterday. Um, Taliban in Pakistan got pretty close to Islamabad yesterday. Just six miles away, they hit a 20-truck NATO convoy on its way to Afghanistan. At least, at least seven dead. It comes at a time when the Pakistan government has announced a 17% rise in its defence budget on the line from the Pakistan capital uh, is Ahmed Rashid, the author of Descent into Chaos, which, to give it its subtitle, is the story of the United States and the failure of nation-building in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Central Asia. And, of course, he's written the definitive story of Taliban. What would it be called? Taliban. Ahmed Rashid. Um, is there anything happening now that suggests to you that you should alter your, uh, your book subtitle, the United States and the Failure of Nation-Building? Well, I think, you know, there has been a very serious deterioration of uh, the security situation both in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. Uh, we've seen the build-up to the Kandahar offensive uh, uh, by the Americans and by NATO forces, and the Taliban seem to be carrying out a similar offensive, trying to assassinate as many uh, uh, Afghan officials as they can. Uh, and in Pakistan, we've seen the spread of the Pakistani Taliban going, um, uh, concentrating for the first two years, three years, in the northwest corner of the country, and now becoming basically a nationwide movement, as in Afghanistan. 
I was think, thinking of some figures yesterday um, that during the past three years there's been about a thousand, about a thousand people killed by militants in Pakistan. That is that is more than a tragedy because it doesn't even take into account those that have been wounded. Well, absolutely, and uh, um, uh, that doesn't take into account also the the army casualties have been very high um, at the same time, and. Um, uh, and, and the fact is that, you know, th- th- there is no coherent movement of the Taliban. Um, we don't know who the leadership is. We don't know what their aims are exactly. At least in Afghanistan, you know who you're fighting and, and why the Taliban are fighting, um, who the leadership is and who the various factions are led by. Um, in Pakistan, it's, it's a much more confused and consequently, and in many ways, a much more dangerous picture. Um, the... <sighs> Big budget increase announced, the 17% in the defence budget. It's a huge counterinsurgency commitment in there somewhere. Uh, it's also a political effort. But I'm just wondering, can Pakistan really contain, never mind defeat insurgency? Well, I think, you know, if there was a coherent strategy, what, what the army and the government lack is a comprehensive strategy. There's a lot, unfortunately, of ad hocism that's going on and reaction to events, reaction to offensive by the Taliban. Um, and, that, and that, of course, is what kicked off this initial um, uh, army action two years ago when the Taliban went into the Swat Valley, um, north of Islamabad. Now, since then, we, we, we have a military component to the current offensive, but there's no civilian component, there's no uh, DDR, disarmament, uh, re-education. What do you do with thousands of young people um, who are being caught uh, uh, by the military? Um, how do you educate the pub population? How do you win public opinion, hearts and minds? All these kinds of elements are just completely missing from the Pakistani campaign, unfortunately. Right. Thank you very much there, Ahmed uh, Rashid, in, in, in Pakistan. I'm sorry for the quality of the line uh, in, in that interview. Uh, John, the um, NATO um, meeting today, they're reporting that the lawyer Jirga in Afghanistan last week was something of a success. Um, it, it is extraordinarily easy, isn't it, to be cynical about these, uh, these meetings and these responses? It is, but it's very difficult for outsiders, even those with expertise in uh, Afghanistan, to, to measure success. But it was interesting that in today's visit of uh, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, he put uh, tremendous emphasis on the need for a proper political settlement and praised the attempts of Karzai, President Karzai, to get support um, among the, uh, the Jirga. Uh, uh, so that they could encourage some of the lower-level Taliban uh, supporters to think again about uh, joining the uh, central government. Um, Marty McCauley, one of the things I wanted to talk to Ahmed Rashid about, uh, if that line hadn't gone in between us, um, was the the importance of this in a regional context in Afghanistan. It is not simply Afghanistan, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. Pakistan. Now, Pakistan is the key to resolving the problem of uh, Afghanistan, but a lot of other countries also have keys. Yes, but Pakistan is the key here and the West may in fact have to make up its mind whether the security and stability of Pakistan 
should take uh, uh, the first position and Afghanistan the second position and basically say uh, the, military uh, the longer the military campaign continues in Afghanistan, the stronger the Taliban in Pakistan will be and the Pakistani military and the ISI, uh, which is supposed to be backing some of these uh, groups and so on, India accuses Pakistan of that. And basically the, the choice, I think, will be within the next six months, uh, we, we concentrate our efforts on Pakistan, you back Pakistan, and if you like, write Afghanistan off and say, right, we've lost Afghanistan, you cannot win it militarily, and if you continue military fighting and so on, you will strengthen uh, the Taliban in uh, Pakistan. Michael Codner, that point that uh, we were talking about earlier uh, with Nick Childs in Brussels, that the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, said, we're not sending people to Kandahar. Well, I don't think we, we thought we were sending people to Kandahar. But behind it, he said, you know, it's too expensive. Um, Britain's efforts in Afghanistan have reached a peak, it would seem, from what he was saying and also what the Prime Minister was saying today in Afghanistan itself. Yeah, well, the arguments for Britain to be contributing to the offensive in Kandahar, in Kandahar to switch from Helmand to Kandahar, um, a little bizarre. Because the Canadians are leaving, there is a hole there. But the British already have um, a established history in Helmand and they have the experience there. And why, unless the British contribution will be expanding considerably when they leave Helmand to do Kandahar. I mean, it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And I think it's very much a, a um, media-led uh, argument uh, that we are not going to take the role that um, is being offered to us. But I don't think there's any, uh, there's any evidence that role has been offered. General Petraeus at my institute's conference earlier in the week said that nothing has ever been asked of Britain vis-à-vis -vis Kandahar. There wasn't that expectation. Which is what Liam Fox was saying yes, he's when just he reinforcing met Robert it. Gates. Yes, and the contribution is, British contribution is extremely substantial, bearing in mind other things are, are the, the um, size of our economy and all the other um, aspects and uh, we've got a job in Helmand. It's been more clearly defined by the American presence in a very difficult area. We've now got a job which you could argue is more manageable and why shift from that job except that other nations aren't prepared to put up the courses. It is we've added to that John contribution Dickey. today. I mean, David Cameron has committed 67 ex millions extra for uh, the bomb disposal and the more training of, of people in dealing with uh, roadside bombs. He's also said greater funds will be made available to the Afghans, I mean, for the training programme. So that we accept that even despite the... Uh, austere economic situation, we're still making Afghanistan a number one priority. But, but if, you look at that, if you look at that, what the Prime Minister is saying is we're not going to do any more fighting. No. Uh, he if you look where the money's going, it's in fact making, if you like, the present situation more safe. Uh, and the fact that he stresses so much the political future of Afghanistan is a signal, a clear signal, this country wants out militarily. What about... Um, the, the pressure that we're supposed to be putting on al-Qaeda, on, 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 on Taliban. And every so often we hear stories about, oh, well, uh, al-Qaeda is trying to relocate. And where is it locating? The Yemen, mm. um, uh, which the, the, the British certainly, uh, through one way or another, have had a long history of uh, conflict there. 
Is there anything really in this, or is this yet another case that we've got part of a story and the media is following up part of a story and giving another part of the story? There have been reports for at least six months that al-Qaeda has bases in southern Yemen. The key is southern Yemen, um, which, and apparently there are more rifles and more uh, guns in Yemen than per head of the population than any other country in the world. So therefore everybody's armed, and al-Qaeda is there, apparently the Taliban is there and so on. Uh, and that's a very good base. And the basic reason why the Taliban is not negotiating with Karzai is because they believe they're winning. And if you're winning, you don't need to negotiate. Uh, you just wait until the other side collapses. And al-Qaeda, it's very difficult to distinguish between al-Qaeda and Taliban, but it's mainly al-Qaeda. They seem to be, uh, uh, their tentacles seem to be stretching over the, the Middle East. But well, uh, the interesting thing about the Yemen is surely the arrest of 60 foreigners who have got, uh, allegedly, al-Qaeda connections. They've been uh, going there as language students and then being sucked into the system. Mm. But presumably they went there... Uh, with that in mind, they they, they went, if, if you like, converted mm. when they got there. I mean, should we get should we get our sort of thinking caps on about Yemen far more in you know, week by week? I mean, one looks at, for example, the president there, Ali Abdullah uh, Saleh, and thinks, how the heck, for thirty odd years, has he managed to hold this country together anyway? Because he's backed by the Americans. Mm. They've trained his troops, provided them with millions of dollars, and one of the complaints or the people in northern, because Yemen is split so many different ways, but really north and south, the many people in the north is that uh, that it's a nepotism, that all the money goes to his clan and all the other people, and you have these various uh, Sufi and other uh, groups. And then the south, uh, because it was formerly the Marxist area, some of that remains and so on. Uh, it, it's is that the, the old PDRY? Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, which broke up in bloody uh, confusion. Uh, and they don't see themselves linked up to the north because there's no money. There's no money flowing to the south. That's the argument. Right. Where are we? 32 minutes after the hour. Um, you're listening to SITREP on BFPS Radio 2 with me, Christopher Lee. Still with me, Michael Codner, the Director of Military Studies at the Royal United Services Institute, Dr Martin McCauley from University College London, and the former dip diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey. If you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme simply by going into bfbs.com forward slash SITREP and clicking on Listen Again. Now, still in that region, the so-called Middle East, um, the Gaza story. It won't go away, will it? Uh, President Obama uh, said yesterday that he thought that the embargo uh, was unsustainable and, he said, unacceptable. America is sending special aid to Gaza on the line from the Bar-Ilan University, the political scientist, Dr Jonathan Reinhold. Um, is it true to say, Jonathan, that, that an American aid package anyway, which is not the first one, of course, is clean? In other words, the Israelis would say, yes, we're no, we know you're not going to start putting arms and uh, strategic substances in there. Yes, I mean, I think so. I think, uh, you know, um, Israel trusts America. Uh, if there's one country in the world that Israel trusts, it's certainly America. That's definitely the case. But in, in, equally... Um, Certainly from some of the stuff that's come out of White House spokesmen and the State Department and even to some extent from National Security, Security Agency, um, the United States doesn't seem the certain ally that Israel has learned to rely on for or since 1948. Well, I think that um, it's certainly true to say that the Obama administration hasn't been as positive as uh, the previous administrations of uh, Bush uh, junior and uh, also of Clinton. But having said that, 
uh, cooperation on the strategic and the military level has actually deepened uh, since the end of Bush. Where there have been problems is more in the level of political support. And what concerns Israelis is American uh, weakness and lack of resolve um, on Iran, um, maybe not backing Israel on the nuclear question as much as uh, other countries have. So there are, there are issues of concern, but still, when Israelis look around the world, they see America on one side and the rest of the world on the other. How is the whole, what we call the Gaza situation, the, the, the armada, the flotilla that, uh, that w- was stopped, how is that still being covered? How is it still being played in, in, in Israel? Because it's not going to be the last one. Well, there's, there's, uh, it's operating on several levels. There's uh, intense discussion about what is the best way to handle this. There's definitely a feeling that on the operational level, mistakes were made, particularly about intelligence regarding uh, that ship in particular, although the other five uh, there were no problem with. On, on another level, there's a feeling that um, Israel is uh, being isolated diplomatically for completely cynical reasons. Um, that a double standard is in operation and that there's not a lot, uh, it doesn't make a lot of difference what Israel does on that level. So on on a practical level, there's an intense discussion about what to do. In the diplomatic arena, there's a sense that Turkey, for example, just has made a strategic decision over the last couple of years to move closer to Iran. It's saying that Hamas is not a terrorist organization. Why comparing um, the Gaza situation to 9-11. And so Israelis feel against that background, there's very little that can be done. Um, yesterday, the, the Turks were saying that relations between the two countries, and there is an important relationship between Turkey and Israel, would never be the same again. Is that your feeling? I think, I think it's been going that way for some time. Turkey's allowing its airspace... Um, Uh, allowing Iran to uh, supply weapons through Syria to Hezbollah over its airspace. There's been problems for quite a long time. The Turks seem to be, at least the current government, looking to to switch sides in the Middle East or at least be equidistant between the West and uh, and Iran. And uh, this is, uh, you know, a function of it. There's not a lot that Israel can do except damage limitation in that regard. It's also coming at a time when, for example, the United Nations has agreed to renew and even strengthen sanctions against Iran. Um, And Iran is probably the country in the whole Middle East where Israel has um, a a peculiar uh, interest. Is the interest in Iran, is it a diversionary tactic or do uh, Israelis actually believe Iran still to be a threat? Israelis perceive Iran to be the main threat in a number of ways. Apart from the direct threats um, to destroy Israel, saying it doesn't have a right to exist, denying the Holocaust, there's the indirect threat of supplying uh, terrorist groups on our borders who don't recognize our right to exist and deliberately target our civilians with rockets, longer-range rockets, with bigger payloads on a continual basis. And that, for them, is a diversion from their their nuclear program to divert world attention from their nuclear program. We're also concerned because uh, the indirect effects of Iran going nuclear will mean the nuclearization of the region. And since we're surrounded by hostile states to one degree or another, we don't like the idea of the spread of nuclear weapons. So Iran is anything but a diversion for us. Um, If anything, it's an incentive 
which encourages moderation in Israel on the peace process issue. If you want to understand why we have a right-wing government that's gone for a settlement freeze for 10 months and has recognized the two-state solution, then you need to understand it's because uh, this government feels that it needs the backing of the West, and particularly the United States, when it comes to Iran. At Bar Ilan University, Dr. Jonathan Reinhold, thank you very much indeed. Um, John, can I, I come back to this thing about Turkey? Um, there is, there is, has been for 12 months, hasn't there, an idea that Turkey, a member of NATO, an ally we were talking about earlier on, um, sort of, it strongly divides governments in Europe, doesn't it? Very much so. Uh, just to go back to Dr. Rangel for one moment, I was amused at the uh, stressed importance of avoiding the nuclearization of the Middle East. I presume that just means uh, further, uh, Israel can keep its nuclear mm. uh, weapons but should uh, want no proliferation of, uh, of the weapons any further. Mm. But now, On Europe. Um, <coughs> Turkey has a, a difficult role to play. Um, Internationally, it wants the help of, of the EU countries to uh, join uh, the Union, wants its help to in a Cyprus settlement, but there are strong um, resentments throughout the European Union, particularly in Paris, with uh, President Sarkozy and Angela Merkel not wanting a large uh, Muslim element I in the European Union. Martin McCauley. Uh, I've, I've followed uh, Turkey closely over the last couple of years, um, especially the Prime Minister Edgen. And he's definitely moving into a position where, if you like, the old Ottoman Empire, yeah. the Ottoman Empire and the Persian Empire. And he, he's positioning Turkey to play a major role because uh, if the, he, there's an approach with Iran, even though the Turks are Sunnis and the others are Shiite, uh, the two are coming together and he's trying to downgrade the military. Uh, I think that's quite deliberate. Uh, of, I'm sure the government, Turkish government, would deny that. Quite successfully that. by arresting a large number of them, putting them on trial. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> there seems to be some basis. Uh, there's a treason trial going on yeah. now that uh, mm. the group of military officers who are trying to uh, stage a coup d'état. Uh, but the, the military is being downgraded, and uh, if the Turkish economy gets into trouble, and it's, it's doing okay at present, but if it gets into trouble, then there'll be a risk of a military coup again, if it sees Turkey going too fast towards Iran and towards an Islamic, uh, or uh, towards uh, in an uh, Islamic orientation. Um, Michael Kodner, the uh, the United Nations uh, renewal of sanctions um, and the perhaps predictable Iranian response. You know, it's like a dirty handkerchief, just bin it. It doesn't actually mean anything to us. Um, the truth is that apart from public declarations, including Russia and China, that resolution won't solve anything, will it? Well, it, it, there are implications for the longer term for Iran, I'm, and I'm not an expert in Iran, I would defer to my colleagues in this respect, but there are implications in the longer term. One, one uh, looking once again towards the younger Iranian population, but actually solving the present problem, what's most important is, I'd have thought, the, the issue of Russia and China actually supporting the resolution and not, um, and, and not taking an, um, a divergent view, which must be significant as far as, um, uh, as, far as Ahmadinejad is concerned. Right. I the mean, Martin McCauley, there's one important point here, is that Russia's not going to do too much, is it, because it's got so much trade going on with Iran. That's them, but China is much more important than yeah. Russia. 
because they have, uh, they're talking about a billion dollars, um, no, a hundred billion dollars trade turnover. Uh, and there's vast reserves of uh, natural gas and oil in Iran, which the Chinese are involved in, in uh, talking and developing and so on. Uh, and what China wishes to prevent is a, a revolution in Iran which turns Iran pro-Western. So no revolution, people are trying to stop a revolution in Turkey. Turkey mm -hmm. is trying to, is the, is, wants to be the other superpower, at least yeah. in the Middle East with Iran. Yeah. So, and, and now stopping another revolution next door in Iran. Yeah, and China and Turkey don't have very, very close relations, but China has been trying to uh, improve relations because you have the a lot of the Uyghurs who are from Xinjiang, a lot of them are, are in Turkey uh, and uh, doing nasty things to the Chinese embassy and things like that. Uh, but uh, the, I think the key player will be China, and China may have to decide, because at present it says we don't get involved in politics. Uh, um, our politics are always economic. Uh, we can we confine ourselves purely to economic uh, matters, uh, and we're not talking about regime change or anything like that. Sooner or later, um, China may have to choose which side are you on, because if there's a risk of a military confrontation over Iran, then China will have to choose. John, they're pretty, they're pretty, uh, quietly, they've watered down the resolution immensely, mm. and they know that these uh, sanctions against shipping are pretty meaningless because the, the Iranians have renamed their ships, the ship. rebased them in Malta, rebased them in, in Dubai, yeah. that they can still carry what they can want I, around John, the world. Can I ask, uh, just, it's, it's almost a sort of um, a strategic diplomatic point here. Um, we have, for example, uh, the United States, and let's discard Israel's interest. The United States talking rather in military terms. We're all talking military terms about Iran. We're saying, you know, they might, they're heading towards mm -hmm. nuclear weapons. And by and large, most people say it's inevitable, just as it was inevitable the North Koreans would get some capability. Now, on the other side, you've got the people that we don't entirely trust, the Russians and the Chinese, saying, yeah, but there's oil, there's mm -hmm. gas. Uh, perhaps we ought to do this in a more commercial sense. It seems that we've got the world equally split on how to deal with the one country which we had somebody in the program last week, Paul Rogers from Bradford University, was saying he thinks Iran is the most dangerous place in the world today. Could well be, and Tehran is perfectly aware of that split between uh, a Washington access and uh, a Moscow Beijing uh, <coughs> consideration, and they can play one off against the other, and they know that they're... Uh, able to uh, entice the Chinese in uh, because of their economic uh, relationships uh, and get the political dividend from so doing. Martin? The uh, Iranian propaganda vis-à-vis -vis Israel has changed over the last six months. Previously, Israel was seen as a giant, a very dangerous uh, enemy and so on, and beware and so on. And now, propaganda is the other way around. Uh, Israel is declining power. Uh, and once the Jews see blood, they'll run away. Now, I don't know whether they believe that, but apparently this is, uh, this is uh, uh, well, uh, it is what the Middle East wants to hear, because they've been told for 50 years that Israel is a great uh, military power. Now the Iranians say, no, 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 they're not. Uh, they're, in fact, a declining power. The United States is a declining power. And it's like, we are the future. And from a propaganda point of view, that really goes down well in the Middle East. Right. OK, another half an hour, we probably solved the whole problem in the Middle East here. Um... Another one which is very curious. The United States has detained uh, an American military analyst, Bradley Manning. Now, the suspicion is, um, it's more than a suspicion, he leaked classified material 
to the WikiLeaks website. WikiLeaks, I imagine everybody's been looking at it for years. Manning said to have handed military videos and 260,000 classified United States embassy messages to WikiLeaks. You just wonder what goes on American embassies that could produce 260,000 classified messages. Along the line, the cyber defence analyst at King's College London, Tim Stevens. Um, now, I would say without advertising them, WikiLeaks is a must-read for people, I suppose like me, who want to uh, read what other people have leaked. Indeed, uh, and they've been uh, online, as it were, since uh, <clears throat> 2007. And occasionally they do come up with uh, some rather interesting scoops, um, such as uh, all the pager messages on 9-11 and sort of certain details about what Icelandic senior politicians were up to. And now, of course... Um, uh, Bradley Manning has said that you know uh, Secretary of State Clinton will be quaking in her boots or something along those lines uh, if she knew what the content of these classified diplomatic messages was. So I mean, it's a sort of site that people do keep their eyes on. Um, I don't think it's ever been quite so well known or popular as it is today, and of course that's causing great concern. Yeah, I, I was, I was, they, they love to quote Time magazine, don't they? They said <laughs> it could become the biggest thing since the Freedom of Information Act. Well, there's one who's had terrible difficulty of getting anything out of the government on the Freedom of Information Act. I'm all for WikiLeaks. Mm. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing like uh, over-egging the pudding, shall we say. Um, it's, 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 the thing about it is that um, it could be the biggest thing since the Freedom of Information Act, but the Freedom of Information Act uh, is due process. Um, and the thing with WikiLeaks is, although it's take a fairly principled stand to protecting sources, etc., etc., it occupies this, this dubious legal position. I mean, it's much clearer in the states where you have the protection, the constitutional protection of the First Amendment, for example, but in other countries it's much less clear where whistleblowers sit in relation to the law and to their own responsibilities. Hmm. There's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's just a fun thing in many ways because we like the idea of people whistleblowing. Well, I do. I love the idea of people <laughs> whistleblowing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, old hacks love this sort of thing. But 